and welcome to the Clockwork Game Design Podcast. I'm your host, Keith Bergun. All right, so I have a, another one of these uh, sort of potpourri sort of episodes today. I'm going to talk about a bunch of different things. Um, one, the first topic for today is um, the process of making Dragon Bridge, which in the last three months, which um, has been a while since I've made a, a proper uh, episode, but basically in the last three months, I made a card game from scratch. Starting in July, uh, I think July 16, we started the 18 card strategy game jam, and that's when I started properly the design for Dragon Bridge. And since then, it's just been like a flurry whirlwind. We ran a Kickstarter. We uh, finished the Kickstarter with about 4,000 and change, and uh, which is plenty, That's that's like, pretty much what I was looking for. I'll talk about that a little bit, um, setting a price point and that kind of thing. Because what I hope that this uh, episode can do is if you're thinking of doing a card game Kickstarter, um, maybe I can help you out in the way that some people helped me out a lot. So that's 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 part one is running a Kickstarter, doing Dragon Bridge, maybe some thoughts on the design of the game, that kind of thing. The second th- big thing I want to talk about is uh, the next big game that I want to work on. And uh, that's a turn-based tactical squad war game, basically. Anyways, um, first I want to say thank you so much for listening. And of course, if you supported the Kickstarter, thank you so much for supporting that. Doing a Kickstarter, as you will hear momentarily, is a ton of work. It's a scary, risky, horrible thing. And, I, you know, so I've run five Kickstarters in my life, three of which have failed. And, you know it's a lot of work that goes into a Kickstarter. And if it fails, it sort of feels like, well, it's not just the work that you put into the Kickstarter, but into the, usually you have to actually like make the game to some extent, or at least uh, more than a uh, vertical slice usually of the game. And so it sort of feels like, well, should I just not make this thing? It sort of feels like a rejection of the thing in a way that you don't really get in, in any other form in the arts. You never really get that kind of like, no, we're telling you absolutely no on this thing. This stone cold no. It's it's rare. Um, often if you have bad sales or if you get bad reviews or something, you can kind of like word, you know, work your way through that and, and sort of tell yourself a story about how, well, the sales are going to get better soon or, you know, uh, this review is bad because they were thrown by this one element, which is, you know, really sort of not looking at the whole picture but when you get rejected from kickstarter it's like you get this like hard like no answer um it's pretty rough and so uh i I just wanted to say again thank you so much if you have supported the kickstarter Uh, if you haven't and or you you missed it i talked to a few people actually who were like wait you ran a kickstarter what and i tried really hard to get the word out about it um but, you know, there's limited capacity to do that when you don't have a huge marketing budget, which we're going to talk about, too. And of course, if you're a patron, thank you so much. I know that in the last month or so, as we were doing the Kickstarter, patron content was a little bit uh, skimpier than usual. Uh, of course, this podcast being the main thing there. But just so you know, I'm very committed to this Patreon and making it really something special and making it better, better and better every few months you know uh try to just improve the quality of the podcast improve the um you know the range of different kinds of uh materials that i'm producing give you more behind the scenes stuff more exclusive stuff working on that so so thank you patrons and thank you thank you to everyone who supported uh, us on kickstarter 
And before I get into the, the main meat of the thing, one last thing is that we have, and we're going to talk about this, but we have a, uh, a mailing list now. So if you go to uh, keithbergun.net slash sign up, you can sign up for our mailing list. And I really recommend you do that because that's like anytime I have a big announcement, it's going through there. I also have a magazine now, which I have made two episodes of. I'm planning on doing more. I'm not sure how often I'm going to do that. I'll usually do it around the launch of certain games. But yeah, the idea is to have like a Nintendo power for Keith Burgun games, basically. Uh, in the first couple episodes, we have comics, we have uh, behind the scenes stuff, we have lore stuff. So um, little sections about characters. We have fan art. We have all the kinds of stuff that you would see in uh, like Nintendo power, basically. And that's part of my learning to not hate marketing by basically realizing that marketing is not distinct from art. So for years, I always thought, you know, you make your art, you make your thing, and then you have to do marketing, which is like this totally separate thing where you get out there and you make ads and you make like social media content and whatever it is. But the reality is that the way that we, and this is like a quick little side spiel before I get into my first thing, but the way that we really process art is totally informed by stuff that we would usually call marketing. Um, and, and this is sort of part of like maybe a deformalization of some of my thinking about art and how to make things and express ideas, um, is that it's not all, a, it never is only in the work itself that uh, your ideas are being communicated and expressed or, or people are getting value from your thing. It's always contextualized in a society. So, you know, if I put out an album, you know, part of how people experience that album is not just my music and the things that are on the CD and the or whatever the the art, album cover art and all that kind of stuff. But also, if they uh, uh, they have a friend and the friend told them about this band and what they think about that friend and uh, maybe they saw a flyer and where that flyer was posted, like literally what part of town they saw that flyer in. Um, all these kinds of things sort of in help to inform how a person is going to interpret a piece of art. And a lot of those things are not inside our control. Most of the things, arguably, but some of them are. And part of expression and creating, trying to communicate is to use all the available uh, means of communication. And that's really what, what quote unquote marketing is. I remember in the the 90s, uh, I remember people saying about bands that video music videos were marketing tools, it, you know, that 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 music videos like somehow like weren't the purpose of the band, of course, you know, the band wanted to make music, but they would make music videos in order to help sort of like sell their music because you wouldn't make money directly off music videos. They're sort of like seen as kind of like advertisements for the album or for the tour or whatever. But yeah, music videos absolutely are a big part of how people process um, music. I mean, that's that's absolutely true today as it ever has been, um, arguably more true today than it ever has been. Um, if there's a new, you know, Beyonce album out, like the music videos that you see and how 
I mean, th those are in particular are very much like obviously part of the um, sort of artistic expression of like Beyonce, for example. But there's plenty of bands who just they put something together for for a music video and it, it's part of the experience. It part, it's part it's part of how the person processes the music. So that's how I that's how I'm kind of seeing marketing these days is um, you are still making your art. You're still doing your thing. And actually, I think to the extent that you feel like you're doing anything else, probably you just shouldn't do that. There may be kinds of things that you can do to get the word out or to uh, to to draw eyeballs or things like that. If you feel like you're not contributing to the experience of your thing overall when you're doing that, maybe you're actually not doing the right thing. Maybe that is a counterproductive thing. Like you might, yeah, maybe you can do some clickbaity thing that makes more people come and look at your thing, but you're going to fail to create a real connection because there's going to be this dissonance between what people see and this ad, this clickbait ad and what they sort of experience when they arrive there. Or possibly the clickbaity thing you know, it does end up uh, sort of resonating in this way that you didn't even predict. So it's all it's all kind of messy. But the point is to not think of marketing as its own thing. Like I don't even I don't even want to say the word marketing anymore. I just I just want to, um, you know, I want to basically like tell stories about my work and 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 share what I'm working on and, and share something like this gem wizards universe, which I'm going to talk about later in this episode. Uh, and that's all that that's, that's all that I'll be doing. Um, and it is, I guess you could say it's a sort of instead of marketing, but it is marketing. I think it's, I think it's the way to do that. It's the way to get people engaged and interested in what you're doing is to actually like inform them and kind of you know let them experience it and let them you know so so i just want to say a few more things about this this has become like a third thing that i've creeped into this uh, episode but uh, i think it's i think it's important there's this uh idea of like jab 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 right hook and which is the idea that you you sort of like give in it's a marketing term that's like basically you or like give 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 take i've heard before um, the idea is that like for everything, every time you ask the, the audience to come and like click on your thing or buy your thing or support your thing or whatever it is, you give them a bunch of content, like three times as much content or four times as much content, large amount of content that they get. So that's like free stuff, like free comics and free, you know, artwork and free um, stories and whatever weird, weird stuff, um, whatever you come up with, like, but it's just cool content that they can engage with like for free and you're just giving it to them and so i think that the spirit of that is sort of right uh or rather what that end not the spirit of that what the, that ends up doing is is roughly right because it's you know it, it should be about marketing is just more of making your art so yeah you just make your art more and just get it out there but the idea of thinking of it as this transactional thing like you give three things and then you take you know at some point is i think all sort of just that the spirit of that's actually wrong i think that overall you should think of it as a conversation and overall you should think of it as like you're helping to like build this world and sometimes that's going to involve asking for things and sometimes a lot of the times that's going to involve you know you producing material and putting it out in the world 
And that's just how that will be. I, I don't think that you should think of it as like, oh, I'm going to trade three, you know, gives for one take. Um, I really think that that's sort of... Uh, commodified way of looking at you know transactional way of looking at it is not the way to to do it i think that you should really think of it as like you're talking to your friend that's another thing that a, a marketing friend of mine told me is like when you write an email just like write it like as though you're writing to your friend you know what i mean don't write as the like in that marketing voice so that's i guess the message i have here is like don't do marketing just publicly make art that contributes to the thing that you're making. So, but yeah, that's that's pretty much my spiel. That's what I plan to do. I have no idea how it'll work out, but you know, it, it's something I feel good about and I don't feel gross about at all. Like I feel, and I, I never thought I would get to that place of like being like, oh yeah, I feel like I can, uh, I can do something that's like marketing and be proud of it. Like I didn't think that was really an option. So I do feel that way now, and I'm, I'm happy about that. So let's get into our first major section. As I said, I made a Kickstarter. It's over. It ended uh, about a week or so ago, uh, a little over a week ago. And it ended uh, actually on the first day that I was at Indiecade, um, and which was interesting because I, I wasn't around really for a few days. I was very much inundated in, in Indiecade-ness, uh, which I can talk about a little bit uh, in here as well. But yeah, I, I made this game lightning fast um, in like three months, which, you know, for, no, for those who know me, understand that I it takes me three to six years to make games typically. So that was a very different experience for me. I think that there's a few explanations for it. One was... You know, I literally put the uh, the time limit on myself of it was a one week game jam using just 18 cards. These different limitations really helped me a lot. You know, after that, after that point, I then after expanded upon it uh, a good amount, actually. And we hit a stretch goal, which I then expanded on it even more. Um, so it's, you know, it's a it's a it's still a very small game that you can bring around in your pocket. Tiny but it's much bigger than 18 cards, uh, especially with the expansion. I think the other explanation for why it happened so quickly was I had been trying to design this game, this very game, for years. I think probably there was a good stretch of like six years straight or so where I was making version after version after version after version of this game, bringing it to conventions, uh, you know, not formally, but like bringing it just a version of it. I remember I have photos of my, myself playing it with uh, Dan C from uh, uh, Spry Fox years ago. And, or, or no, I shouldn't say it because it wasn't the same game. I, I, I tried many, many different versions of a, you know, sort of a on guard or um, flash dual style bridge, like a one by 18 tile bridge sort of um, thing where you're pushing each other back and forth. I always saw something in that and I was never able to like pull it together for some reason. I, and I stopped this around 2016 or so, 2015, 2016. Uh, but from about 2010 to like 2016, I think somewhere in that area, I was just doing version after version after version. I probably have a good 30 different game design documents lying around for different versions of this, some of which got very far, but none of which I felt like really worked. 
So my theory on how this all happened so quickly was that I was working and working and working on, on that and nothing worked. Or at least I, I didn't, I did maybe it was like, I didn't have the skill at the time to like get it over the finish line. Um, and now I do. That's one possibility. The other possibility is that I worked on these things and then in the background, after I like sort of like canceled them or tabled them, um, in the background, back of my mind, I've always been like sort of chewing on that problem a little bit. I suspect both of these things are a little bit true. So when I went to sit down to make this card game, it just came right out of me. Like I remember I just wrote the design doc. In fact, I should go look at the original design doc and I, Google Docs is what I use and it has revision history. And I should look at the first revision. That would be an interesting thing to post. I think I'll probably put that in the show notes. So anyway, that that's a that's just a quick thing about this game and the process of making this game. I'm really, really happy with how it came out. And that's not marketing talking. I I will tell you, and I have told you, and I've told others that when I'm think some I'm disappointed in something. In fact, I'll quickly mention two things. Uh one is, you know, obviously push the lane slash escape the omnocronom, which I largely see as a game design sort of experiment that didn't pass, that sort of failed. Um, and the other one is, um, I, I don't know if you're familiar with this, but I was working for a good six months or so on a game called Chess Mix, maybe three or four months. I don't remember exactly now. And it's a single player game that takes place on a chessboard. It's got a lot of charming qualities and some really interesting ideas, but I don't know that it really all comes together exactly. So I'm... That's up on my itch page, uh, so you're free to check that out. Um, patrons, of course, get it for free. It's sort; of, It may just be missing something, and I'm not sure what that something is. But my point is, I will tell you if I think something I'm doing is... Uh, I have no gripes about saying I've failed in a design. Like, I don't love that that's the case, but I'm not just, like, one of those people who, you know, is in this, like, marketing bullshit mode. You know, I'm I'm really interested in making good games and finding ways to make better games. And so, for me, failures are just about as useful as, um, in terms of that ac uh, academic intellectual pursuit, failures are just about as useful as successes. So, like I'm saying, I, I would admit if I thought Dragon Bridge was a failure, and I really don't. I really think it's like a good card game um, that's playable. It's fun. It could probably be a little smoother around the edges. I mean, I, I, of course, I can wait, think of ways to improve it. But I think fundamentally, it's like it's there in a way that's not the case for Omnocronom and uh, Chess Mix. Very different, interesting experience for me making this really fast game. Um and uh but i'm happy with it so i want to talk a little bit about what let's say you want to make a uh kickstarter on uh board game kickstarter on kickstarter there's a lot of resources actually out there for this from what i've found a lot of them the resources out there are for people who have a bit of a larger like budget um so a lot of these big kickstarter board game kickstarters that make like you know i don't know like $30,000 to like $300,000, which is a lot of them. A lot of them do that kind of money. If you're looking to maybe make something inside the like $1,000 to $10,000 range, I think that 
I have some stuff that I can help you with a little bit and give you some advice, some things that I did not know going into this. Now, I've been an indie game developer for a long time, but I there's specific things about board game Kickstarters that um, I feel like I, I didn't know. And so I thought I'd share those and they some of them may be useful for all kinds of game designers and people, you know, entrepreneur type people who are trying to sell their stuff and get, you know, make connections with their stuff. Okay, so first off, I will talk quickly about, um, well, the first thing that I will say is do a mailing list. <laughs> it's weird because, so I resisted having a mailing list for many years, uh, actually about 10 years ago, I think Dino Farm Games had a mailing list, but it was kind of weird. It was like this strange, weird, old thing. And then at some point the website died and I think we like lost our mailing list. It wasn't that big anyway. But um, since then I was like, why do I need a mailing list? Like I have like, you know, I have social media and I have Patreon and like, why would I need a mailing list? And it turns out uh, there's a really great video. I'll try to post it in the show notes. Turns out that all right, two things. One, the board game community has a weird relationship, a special relationship with email marketing. Um, they tend to just be pretty like um, about signing up for email lists. So they actually really do it. And number two, there is research showing that, uh, and this is in that video that I'm going to link uh, in the show notes, but there's some research showing that... Um, people are much more likely to engage with commercial products from an email than they are from social media. For some reason, when they see something on Facebook or on Twitter, they're not as likely to like click through and buy something. They're like not in the headspace to buy something. Whereas when they get an email about something, they are. And there's, I could, you know, make guesses about why that is exactly, but, um, the, the point is it's true. And so, um, I started an email list. Now I should mention, um, uh, um, uh, Adam Wilk, who has helped me immensely more than anybody else. Uh, I mean, he was just there for me constantly during the Kickstarter. Um, and I just kept pinging him like probably like average once a day or so, uh, asking him a bunch of questions about like, oh, what should I do? Should I do this? Should I do this? Should I have this stretch goal? Should I blah, blah, blah? Um, and he was there for me like the whole time. I, I, I can't I can't thank him enough. Um, he is the designer behind Outpost 18, which uh, did really, really well on Kickstarter um, earlier, just like a few weeks before I launched mine. And he was kind of an inspiration for me to launch mine, as well as Tim Fowers, who also, if you listen back to the Tim Fowers episode, he was very much like the literally the audio of him in the podcast uh, was like inspirational to me. I was like, I need to just get a Kickstarter going. So I have to really thank them. So um, I think it was Adam who really told me like, yeah, you got to do an email list and sort of told me a few things about how you can do that. Um, and so I use MailChimp, which is like one of the most popular uh, email marketing things. And basically it's kind of like, you know, you go in there, you set up like a landing page where people can fill it, you know, fill out and add their email, whatever, some throw in some art it's all pretty straightforward if you've ever used any like web editing tools like wordpress or anything like that in terms of that stuff it's all pretty simple and then you know you write out emails and you send out email campaigns they call them 
uh, but they're just emails pretty much. Um, and they, they have paid tiers. I'm using the free one right now. They have paid tiers, which do have some pretty cool features, but probably it's beyond the scope of something like what we're talking about here. Um, but basically it's like you set up a, a board game geek ad, uh, or sorry, uh, you set up a Facebook ad, um, targeting board game geek users, um, specifically. And I did it for like, I don't know, like 10 bucks, uh, what was it? $10 a day for, um, uh, like a week or two before the Kickstarter started. So that would be like, um, $140. And, uh, and I got a lot, like in that time, I think I got like 200, 200 to 300, um, uh, like people signing up. So yeah, your ads are linking to your, you know, MailChimp signup page and you get a bunch of people that way. And now I, I think I've, at this point, I think I have like about 500 people signed up on my mailing list, which is awesome. That means that next time I launch a board game Kickstarter, I, will be starting from that position of having those people. And I, you know, I could have been building that all these years and it's sort of, I'm kind of kicking myself for not having done that. Of course, like I said, in video games, it's not quite the same. You know, I wouldn't have, it, you can't build them so rapidly like that. Um, and, and, you know, I don't know, maybe the rapidness had something to do with uh, the appeal of this particular game. I don't know, maybe, but um most likely, I think it's uh, it's it's really just a matter of just you know people. There's demand. There's real demand in, in board games and the uh, sort of indie apocalypse dynamic that has happened, where the uh, supply is just like way out doing the demand uh, in some senses in indie games. That's not quite so bad in board games, although I have been told that that's uh, starting to become more the case. Um, so, yeah, if you do want to get involved with the board game Kickstarter, I recommend doing it, like, sooner than later because it makes sense to me that within, like, two years, board game Kickstarter as a as a possible route for doing something might be similar to doing, like, a video game Kickstarter. Um, so we'll see. We'll see how that goes. I mean, there's, there's a bunch of stuff going on there. Others have said more uh, intelligent things about that than I have. So... So yeah, get a get an email list, um, and and this is all like the you know one month before uh, you launch your Kickstarter, um, and set up some Facebook ads, and then once you do launch your Kickstarter, you of course switch your ads over if you're if you start running them again if you've stopped, um, start running them again for and then link them directly to your Kickstarter of course. <laughs> um, so yeah, I'm I'm. You will probably need, I think, to start a Kickstarter. My guess is uh, for a board game, you will probably need like $1,000 to $2,000 somewhere in that ballpark because um, I think that's what I spent um, about, you know, getting everything going because you have to pay for ads. And also, actually, you know what? I think I spent more than that because I also, I got a board game geek ad, which for what I, from what I understand and what I experienced, I did not notice the board game geek ad doing that much for me. And it cost a thousand bucks. So I wouldn't do it again personally. Um, or maybe if I did, I would do like a cheaper version. They have a few different tiers and things that they offer. Um, 
So that's why it was really important to me, by the way, that I make like at least like 4,000 bucks on the Kickstarter because I spent, you know, 2,000, 2,500, somewhere in that ballpark um, to just get it going. Um, and that's to say nothing about all the labor, of course. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> it, it, I think you should try to have at least 1,500 or so ready aside in order to do all the marketing weird little stuff that just comes up um so so yeah ads and then also uh by the way side side note but uh yeah this episode is not terribly game design theory heavy <laughs> uh, although it will become that more once i once i hit my the second major topic um which is the next game i'm working on but yeah um you're gonna want to do ads you're going to want to, well, the other thing is you're going to have to print a bunch of prototypes. And then when you're building your campaign, there's like, man, running a board game Kickstarter, especially, I mean, maybe it was just for me because I did it so fast, but it really seems like timing. Like you have to time so many different things together. So you kind of have to have the game basically done before you even start, right? Um, and that's something that's kind of well known about board game Kickstarters. Like you don't, you don't run the Kickstarter to design and produce the art and all that stuff. Like you have that all done magically uh, via no money or basically via you have some way of either living super cheap or, you know, uh, you just have or independently have money in order to be able to make such things. That's that's the reality of how game development is in this world, which is a terrible thing. But that's kind of how it is. Um, you have to have the level of financial independence to be able to basically make the game for free. And then once it's made, then you can talk about maybe getting money uh, to to basically produce copies of the game. So what um, what Tim advocated, I think he advocated for it on his on the podcast, which is that, you know, if you sell, I don't know, 200 copies uh, of your game, you uh, you basically print twice as many and then you try to rather let me rephrase that if you sell like 200 copies on the kickstarter itself like you know 200 people uh pledged at the you know level that gives them gives them a copy of the game so you need to print 200 to fulfill the kickstarter then you would when you actually go to print you print twice as many and the second half of them is uh is used is just sold you just try to sell it um creating a store page or something, which is something I'm dealing with right now. And there's a few different ways to do that. Um, by the way, if I mention anything in this uh, episode that you would like further clarified, please feel free to comment or send me an email and I will do my best to respond to you, of course, and, and to, to answer your question. But yeah, so you have to have to basically have the game done. And there's so many things that you don't really necessarily think about, like that you have to have the game done and you have to like print some prototypes. What a lot of people do is they print out prototypes, uh, you know, they get prototypes made uh, by something like the Game Crafter. I used a lot of Game Crafter during this uh, this whole thing. Uh, it's a great website, it has a great um, front end. They actually have their own app. Um, I forget what it's called, but if you go to the Game Crafter, uh, website you will see that they have their own app that you can download and it costs it costs money to use the app like i think nine bucks a month or something 
but it's i bet it's amazing i haven't used it i just use the i have a simple card game so it was easy enough for me to use the uh the web app so yeah the point is you're gonna have to make uh prototypes like nice looking you know versions of the game that look kind of like what the final version is going to look like because you need photographs of that stuff and you need probably video of that stuff and you need to send out copies of that to people who can you know write you reviews or just sort of be somewhat involved in some way another thing that really helps a lot um, so you and that's something that you're going to need some of that budget for is is sending out uh is, is getting uh prototype versions of the game made and printed and i did a few quite a few because i had to move so fast i actually had to do a few rush shippings which costs money as well so another thing that really helped me a lot was learning to use tabletop simulator it's not nearly as hard as i thought it was going to be um it's very much just this empty little virtual space that has like simple things like you can flip cards and you know write stuff on the table and import graphics basically import card graphics and you know it's a, it's a little bit of a wonky application but you'll learn its proclivities pretty quickly and um it's really worth using it saved me so much time it made playtesting playtesting for me i don't have people in real life who will readily do playtesting with me so it made playtesting possible like most almost all of the uh, dragon bridge playtesting happened on tabletop simulator and yeah it's and it's easy enough to make like you know edits really fast you don't have to print out a bunch of stuff and like waste a bunch of paper and all all that kind of stuff so i really recommend checking out getting into tabletop simulator um for this kind of thing and you can also do stuff like, you know, stream it and make it into like an event where people come and watch. And, you know, we had a few of those that were really fun and really improved the game a lot. So. So, yeah, that though, that's pretty much what I what I have to suggest in terms of doing a, a board game Kickstarter Kickstarter. Other than that, obviously, um, trying to get some kind of like conversation about your game going on board game geek this is something i actually don't know how to do board game geek is you know it's a pretty sort of tight community kind of place you can't just like sort of barge in there you can't just like go into some thread and just be like hey everybody look at my game you know so it's it's hard to know how to get them to know about your game other than kickstarter and other than board game geek ads which again like i said i i I did not notice anything happen when the ads went live, but yeah. So, but trying to get something involved on board game geek is, is good, uh, going on board, a conversation about it. Uh, I'm not sure where else really. I I mean, there's a few other places, obviously, if you have your own community or if if there's related communities that uh, you already know of or are part of, that's, that's really good. Oh, another big one, Facebook board game, Kickstarter groups is apparently like a big deal thing. I'm going to link to this guy, James Math, I think is his name. He's got a website, jamesmath.com, and he's got all these articles on doing um, board game geek, I'm sorry, uh, like board game Kickstarters. And he, uh, they're really, really useful and really helpful. He runs one of these board game kickstarter groups on facebook it's very strange uh but but they 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 really take these facebook groups very seriously they use that a lot 
and uh, they have very strict rules about when you can like post about your game. So make sure when you follow those, um, if you look up like tabletop Kickstarter board game reviewers and media is one of them. If you look those up in Facebook groups, you'll find them. A lot of them are like not invite only, but you have to like get approved to get into the room. And then, yeah, make sure to read the rules and and don't violate their things because they're probably, I assume, pretty uh, strict about actually following those things. But that's another way that you can get some uh, eyeballs on your project. Now, another thing that you can do is you can pay people to review your game. There's a bunch of people like YouTube, YouTubers uh, that literally they just all they do is they review games um, like board games. So you have to mail them the game. So you have to have the game, you know, printed and ready to go and send them a copy of the game. Usually like the physical copy. They're not going to really do like print and play usually or tabletop simulator and they will play test your game and write a review for it. And that can be something that can be really helpful for bringing credibility to your game. And by the way, this is all, again, to say nothing about actually making the game. This is all taking for granted that you have a game, that you have all the art, that the design works, that everything about the game is great and you just want to do a Kickstarter for it. Some of what I'm saying may apply to video game Kickstarters, but your mileage may very much vary. Um, I think it is its own sort of distinct world, the board game and video game Kickstarters. And yeah, doing... Uh, just trying to think of new weird things to do. So I had the idea to do this magazine and these comics. I don't, I mean, man, the comics were like way not time cost effective. Like they, 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 they did not seem to attract a ton of attention. Um, comics are a lot of work. Um, you know, probably looking back, a better thing to do would be to do like single frame comics or like, you know, a single frame of like a character saying some funny thing or like, you know, just some text underneath the character, like this cute graphic, basically. I think that kind of thing probably is more cost effective and uh, a good way to kind of capture something about the spirit of your game without becoming this big narrative thing. I just, I kind of made my comics because I just, I miss like stories, like, you know, narrative linear storytelling. And um, I used to do that all the time. I used to do comics um, a lot throughout my life. And I, I just haven't for years. And I've really been wanting to. So I kind of just did those because I wanted to. And I'm going to do more. And uh, actually, I have a friend of mine is working on another Dragon Bridge comic right now. So there will be another one coming. So yeah, and I, I did a bunch of other weird things. I did a personality quiz. Uh, those kinds of things are all, you know, I mean, people talk about that kind of stuff and write about that kind of stuff all the time. I wouldn't say anything I did particularly worked all that well, but all of it worked a little bit, probably. Um, and so my Kickstarter campaign did not fail. And so, okay, the last thing I'll talk about about a Kickstarter campaign is um, how much should you ask for? And I think this is actually like a really deep existential sort of question. Um, it's like almost like this like dilemma, unsolvable problem, maybe. Um, so you the obvious thing, the perfect world thing is you find out how much it costs to make your thing. And you think about like for a board game, I guess it's like, well, I want to print you know, I don't know, a thousand copies or something, or I don't know, 5,000 copies. And 
do a print run, right? And I don't know. Uh, that's that's the idea. And so that's going to cost. Now, how much does these cost copy cost to make? Now, how much, you know, do I actually want to make in profit on each copy? How much is shipping? All that kind of stuff. And you add up all the costs of everything. Add in the cost of Kickstarter's fees and you know uh, everything else. And then you total that all up and, oh, and, and maybe even labor of like how much it costs, you know, so you, you can pay yourself for all the labor labor you did. I mean, that's that's just that's kind of just absurd. But um, let's put that aside. But but yeah, so um, so you tally all of that up and it's like five hundred thousand dollars or something. Right. It's like two hundred fifty thousand dollars. I don't know. It's some massive number. And then you put that up and people are like, okay, well, this is what you want. And, you know, there's some reasonable chance that they'll give that to you. But there really kind of isn't. I mean, well, actually, that's not true. There, There is a chance that you will get that kind of money. But, um, but more often than not, you won't, I guess is the way to put it. So... You know, then the other option is the other like far, farthest, lowest option is, you know, I've thought about like, why not? Why not when I do a new game, just run a Kickstarter for like one dollar. Right. Because like even if I get like, I don't know, 400 bucks, 500 bucks. I mean, that's 500 bucks that I wouldn't have got without this Kickstarter. But then the, the issue is, well, OK, yeah, but how um how much work did you have to put into this Kickstarter to like put that together? So there's, there's like a dilemma there. So I, what I did with this one and I've tried, if you look at my history of Kickstarters, I've, I've asked for all kinds of numbers ranging from this might, might've been the lowest to the highest, which was for the Oro quest expansion where I asked for 30 grand, which is like still not remotely what it costs to make like a video game which is basically what we were doing we were expanding oro's scope by like double the size and so 30 grand for like three people working on something for like another year which is what we ended up doing anyway without any money um is is uh is not much at all um so so anyways um uh, for this one, I picked a number that was similar. To, it was like because I knew kind of what I was going to be investing up front. Like I said, it was like, you know, I spent like fifteen hundred to two hundred twenty five hundred, probably more like twenty five hundred bucks on all this, all the marketing and prototypes and other stuff that I'm probably forgetting about right now. Other I did other ads. I also oh I think I did run a Reddit ad for a little while. I tried that out. That didn't seem to do very much for me though. And yeah, so with all those things combined, and I, I thought maybe I would do more um sending out things to get reviewed. I was picturing like fifteen hundred to twenty five hundred being like my, you know, investment cost that I would be willing and able to put down in order to get the whole thing going. So then if the if the goal is 2500, you know, I felt like okay, that's low enough where I think I can achieve it because most of my failed kickstarters got around $3000. Granted they were for video games, but I feel like okay, there's like about $3000 worth of money in the world that like is willing to go in my direction for a given project. So, you know, 2,500 seems safe. And that, that's really kind of what I was thinking of because I really didn't want to have a failed Kickstarter. 
Um, and, and then I, and then I kind of felt like, well, it'll probably get somewhere like 3000. And if it goes higher than that, then that's just like, that's great because, um, you know, then I actually can be, you know, sort of out of the hole and putting that money into the printing. So, cause if it had just made the 2,500, it's like, well, I'm kind of might as well have just paid for the printing myself. You know what I mean? So, and even that's not totally true because like, you know, they say Kickstarter is, is a marketing device of a sort because you have this big event, right? And there's this like countdown and, and there's all these other things, qualities to it that are beyond just the numbers. So that's worth something to think about as well. But yeah, so, and you know, we came out to about four, four grand. That's enough now where we also did hit a stretch goal, which is nice. Um, and yeah, it's enough where it feels like, you know, we, we really did something and we're, you know, I'm not in the hole, um, money wise. And so, yeah, a couple of things I learned that I think are kind of new, um, new things in the last few years since I lasted my last Kickstarter, which was for push the lane, um, are don't add stretch goals until you re reach your goal is something that I was told. I don't know if that's true. Uh, but it kind of actually makes a lot of intuitive sense to me to not add stretch goals until you've reached your goal. Cause it's kind of like, maybe it seems like presumptuous or something. And also I always felt weird about adding stretch goals when I first launched the campaign. Like, Oh, look at you. Especially because some of the, the stretch goals can get quite high. It's like, Oh, well, if we make a hundred thousand dollars, here's blah, 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 blah. It's like, dude, you're not even going to make like five grand, like chill out. You know what I mean? So that's one little detail. And another detail was um, social goals is a new thing that's over the last few years. Like, you know, um, how many likes we get on Facebook, how many likes we get on uh, Board Game Geek. But if you have a very small campaign like mine, it's good to combine those all together. That was a good tip that I got, I think, from Adam Wilk. Um, and there was a few other things. Um, feel free to take a look at my Kickstarter, of course. Uh, I'll send a link to that in the uh, page. And basically, there you have my best uh, approach because that's, you know, I edited it and edited it. Um, oh, a few other things. Uh, back in the day, Kickstarters would have the, like, person talking to the camera being like, Hi there, my name is Keith Burgun and I'm doing this card game and blah, 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 blah. Since I was a kid, I blah, 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 blah. Now I blah, 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 right? But now a lot of things don't do that anymore. Now it's just like they get right into it. It's more like a trailer. And um, which honestly, that's better, I think, because it's sort of awkward. The whole like, you know, the the whole sitting there looking into the camera and talking and being like, uh, you know, this heartfelt thing is makes sense if Kickstarter ended up being what it originally claimed it was going to be, which was like. For you know, you're this person and you always wanted to make a game and you have an idea for a game, so tell us about your idea and we'll kickstart it. You know, that's not what it is. Now it's you already made a game and you need some money to distribute it or do some specific thing that's not making the game. Um, yeah, uh, or you know, or you're already like a rich, famous person, rich slash and or famous person and you want to make a game, then you can, then you can just kickstart it. But if for normal people, they can't really do that. So yeah. So yeah, just do like a, a trailer. Um, I got, uh, Blake to do the voiceover for my trailer, which was really nice. Um, that was really cool. 
And yeah, other than that, I think I don't have any specific advice. Um, but uh, if you have a Kickstarter that you're thinking of doing and, you know, you would like me to take a look at it, I'd be more than happy to. So like I said, if I have any other questions uh, about all this, please message me. I hope this wasn't too annoying or like off topic to listen to. Um, but yeah, so we're going to get into our next section, which is about my next game, the thing that you've all been waiting for. And this is your reward for listening to me ramble on about something I don't really know very much about. The working title for my next game is Fantasy Gemeral. It's kind of a joke name that they came up with for it on my Discord. Uh, but basically it's uh, it's called that because, um, or using that name because of Fantasy General, which is... Um, a old 1990s uh, SSI game. They're the people who made the Panzer General games. Um, SSI would make those, they've made a whole series of these, you know, hex-based war games, which themselves were um, interesting and important because they're some of the only digital games that took, you know, something like 20 or 30 years worth of tabletop war game knowledge about how to do tactical war games in a way that is good, <laughs> uh, how to do them well. Um, and by that, I mean, you know, really bring out the tactics sort of, um, and they implemented it into a, into a digital format. And, and whereas a lot of tactical games sort of started more from scratch or they started from like a D and uh, base, um, so games, most of the tactical games that we know of, Advance Wars, Final Fantasy Tactics, any game in that genre, the strategy RPG genre, um, Civilization, all of these things have this very simple XCOM. They have these simple, even the old XCOM, um, they have the simple thing where it's just like, there's these units on a grid, they move, they shoot, they might have a special ability, and they just damage each other. And that's it. That's it. And most of the time they're squares. Um, whereas these older games like Fantasy General, which, by the way, is my favorite of that series. And I, if you can go back and play it, I really recommend people go back and play Fantasy General. It's awkward. It's an old 1990s DOS game, but it's worth powering through and learning and playing. Uh, it has some downsides uh, once you get about to about like, I think, the third island the missions get so long and tedious. And in fact, in general, the missions are a little bit too long. In the first two islands, uh, it's quite good. It's just really great. And so there's a few things about the combat that are are, are very different. And I want to use those things in my game. Um, and by the way, Fantasy General 2 just came out on Steam. And it uses a lot of what I'm about to talk about. And I think that's really cool, but it also does some very weird things um, in terms of like how its single player campaign is set up. It's very story driven, which is a strange choice, in my opinion. Uh, I, I, I like semi recommend Fantasy General 2. I, I more recommend one. I prefer one it, just because it's more to the point. And um, so anyway. So a couple of, let me just give you a couple of things for people who haven't played such games. Um, you might know about zone of control 
This is a rule that actually does exist in some modern uh, video games, uh, strategy tactical video games. Um, Civilization, starting with five, once they were one unit per tile, they implemented zone of control. Zone of control means, let's say you have five movement points on a unit. Well, if you, on your second movement point, move up to move adjacent to an enemy unit, that's the end of your movement. So you can't just like slip by um, uh, an enemy unit by like walking right past them. So the idea here is you can create things like screens. If you have a bunch of a few two or three units, you can actually block off a large area and make it difficult for units to just like zip right by you, especially high uh, units with uh, high capacity for movement, like mounted units or something. So that's one that's like kind of simple. Um, or, or, or rather somewhat common ish. Uh, another one is, um, and actually zone of control is a little bit like attacks of opportunity in Dungeons and Dragons. It just makes the area around you a little bit less mobile for the opponent. Um, okay. And then the, uh, slightly more cool is something called supporting fire. Um, ranged units in fantasy general work differently than there's actually like two tiers of ranged units. I'll tell you about this first. And, and, and by the way, almost all of this stuff is going to apply to my next game, too. So even though I'm telling you about Fantasy General, I'm also telling you about my next game. So there's two kinds of sort of ranged attack, quote-unquote, in Fantasy General. One is that when two units are adjacent, let's say I have an archer, archer unit and you have a melee unit, when, they attack, when one goes to attack the other, there are phases. There's a ranged phase that happens first, and then a melee phase that happens last. Actually, there's I think there's four phases. We don't have to get into the details of that right now. But uh, the idea is that first the archers get to attack, then the melee attacks because they have long range, even though they're both adjacent to each other. And actually, archers um, don't, in, in fantasy general, archer units cannot attack more than adjacent spacing. So they can't attack a unit that's two tiles away. There is then another thing, I think they're called missile or something, like siege units can attack units that are two tiles away. But archers cannot. Okay, so, but I think, if I recall correctly, it's like if, if you have a melee unit and I shoot you with my archers, your melee won't get to a counterattack or something like that. And that I'm a little fuzzy on, I gotta review that. But the, the I just wanted to mention that whole system really quickly before I mention supporting fire. Supporting fire is awesome. So you have a, your melee unit, and then behind that you have a, or next to that, you have one of your friendly archer units, right? If an enemy attacks this melee unit, the archer unit that's adjacent gets to counterattack that attacking unit. So that already creates this dynamic of the positionality of your units mattering, Um not just while you're going, but while the opponent is taking their turn. Um, it's kind of like the theory behind the patrol zone in Codex, if you've ever played that. The idea that you sort of set things up and then various reactions sort of happen based on how things are set up. Um, that's something that's sort of lacking in uh, today's tactics games, where, you know, um, Advance Wars, for example, is very much just you... A lot of tactics games, Outwitters is another favorite of mine, and a lot of tactics games are be the first to attack. 
Um, and actually, the next thing I'm going to tell you about is another way in which that is not the case in fantasy general. So yeah, supporting fire, that's one cool thing. Next cool thing is, um, let's say I have a melee unit, and you have another melee unit that's the, the, same, the same melee unit, right? Like, they're both the same. They have the same stats and everything. And we're standing next to each other, and it's my turn. And I have my melee unit attack your melee unit. We both have, like, 10 health right now. So when I attack you, and both units attack each other simultaneously, and we both then go down to about 8 health. So no one made any... Because I attacked you first, I get zero advantage. You know what I mean? Like, as in, because I, the player, commanded my unit on my turn to attack you before you did that thing, I don't get any advantage for that. You have to get advantages in other ways in Fantasy General. So that is also a, a hugely fundamental, massive thing. And then another thing I will tell you about is... Uh, the system of wounds and deaths and rest. So in Fantasy General, your uh, a unit has like 10 troops inside of it, which you can call its health, I suppose. But, you know, let's call them like 10 troops inside of the unit. At, when they get attacked, they can take wounds or they can take deaths. And I'm a little fuzzy on the details here because I think Fantasy General 2 tweaked it up and I, I, I researched some of that. Uh, but the basic idea is um, if you have a lot of wounded units, you, wounded units can then be killed in further battles. Um, wounded units don't engage. So it's kind of like you're, if you have, let's say you have a unit with 10 troops and 8 wounds, that means you actually are only operating with 2 units who are capable of attacking and dealing damage so you're very very weak now here's the thing though you can always at any point use your whole turn so don't move don't attack don't do anything else just spend the entire turn resting and if you do that you get back all your wounds so that's a really amazing thing that can like cause kind of like come back allow for um, the things to bounce back a little bit. It's not just this, uh, total subtraction mission. There's like, things are coming, you know, your unit, like, and if you think of all these things coming together, all these mechanisms coming together, they all sort of contribute to, you can't just be the first to attack. You can't just kind of kill your way out of this. You have to like set something up. And uh, it, for that reason, it's it's so much more of a tactical uh, thing than than most of these kinds of games are. Another thing that makes it even more so is the morale system and how in, in Fantasy General 1, you don't have to just kill all the opponent's units or do some really simple thing like capture one particular building or anything like that. A lot of the missions come down to the opponent surrendering because their morale is too low. And which is actually kind of cool thematically too. like it's it's cool thematically that you like you 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 know, you're beating them so much. And it's I guess it's more realistic, probably. Right. Like you don't usually in a war completely wipe out the opponent's forces. You win a few battles and then they surrender at some point. And um, so, yeah, there's a system of morale. It's kind of complicated. But it's, uh, it's also really kind of cool. And some units do more damage to morale. Some units, by the way, do more wounding. And some units do more 
killing. So, and that's part of a strategy too, is like, oh, well, I want to, maybe I just, so there's a unit called skirmishers who are like, um, they're kind of like in between melee and ranged um, in a way. And they do very high wounding, but they don't kill at all. And that's really, so that's, it's, it's kind of just a way to just like, if you think about it, it's like you're not permanently hurting this unit because they can just go off into the woods or off into the side and rest and get back. But it's basically like delaying them, if you think about it. So, um, yeah, all that stuff comes together to create something that um, honestly spoiled me for a lot of other tactical games. Uh, I, you know, I've played the crap out of so many tactical games and I still play all of them, but none of them match up at all to something like fantasy general or the other panzer general games although i will say a lot of the panzer general games or the other historical games like the people's general is another one that i played a bunch of they are uh they they actually are a little bit too fiddly and too based in the uh war tabletop war game and simulation genre of like trying to simulate some historical battle that's not something i'm interested in at all um, I don't care about like, oh, well, in this battle, they had to like move the fuel lines across, you know, like you can get too fiddly and and, and annoying with some of that stuff. Um, and and also the history, the, the biggest problem with the historical stuff is the problem that I feel like uh, Fantasy General 2, which just came out this year, maybe has a little bit of, which is not enough uh, randomization in in the mission. So. That's where I'm going to get into more now. What am I going to do? So that so all of that combat stuff is going to be in my fantasy general game, which by the way takes place in the fan, in the Gem Wizards universe. Um, I'm going to switch over to production a little bit, and then I'm going to talk about the game design a little bit more. Um, I already have some code base for this game ready because I was working on a 4x game. Uh, in the fantasy general universe, but then I listened to Soren Johnson on a podcast talk about how hard it is to make a 4X by yourself. And I remember, and I've also witnessed and talked to John Schaefer about his pro process with At the Gates. And also, I have horror flashbacks from my own work on Escape the Omnocronom. You know, there's a sort of tilting at windmills, like, um, there's it's just it's too big a project to work on a game like civilization a 4x game uh by one person usually um or at least for me at this point in my life it's just too much so the, these games are simpler a lot simpler because they're just fighting they're just they're just war games um and uh so i already have some code a lot of code base actually and so that's nice because I can use a lot of what I was working on with the 4X game. Because 4X games kind of have like a war game inside of them. But anyways, um, I also, of course, this is what's great about working within the Gem Wizards universe. I already have made like 2.5 or like two games worth of lore in this universe because of Dragon Bridge. I made a ton of lore for that. And then before that, I was working on the 4X in that universe. And I was also working on another card game, which I've called Overload, which I've tabled for now or shelved for now. Um, it's weird that people say tabled for, for shelved because when you table something, that's like you're about to work on it, right? So that's actually not a great expression. But anyways, um, yeah, the great thing about working inside a universe like Gem Wizards, which, by the way, is 
kind of like the universe I've always wanted to work on. I've never worked in a universe that was more me than Gem Wizards is. Um, so I feel very excited and happy and proud of that universe. But the great thing about it is I don't have to start from scratch every time I make a game in that universe. I already have a lot of stuff to work off of. And that's really awesome. So between those two things, I think actually the production is going to go pretty fast once I get started, which I have not done yet because I'm still dealing with um, Kickstarter stuff. So what do I want to do besides the back to game design now? What do I want to do with this fantasy general game of mine other than use the uh, the fantasy general uh, combat system? Well, I want to do a lot more randomization is one thing. Um, I want to get rid of a unit placement phase. I really think that that is like tedious, annoying, and just bad game design to have this unit, this phase at the beginning of the match where you place your units. Just place them randomly. Use a little bit of AI to like, okay, yeah, put the melee in the front and the range units behind that and just other than that just randomize it you know um and uh and then just make sure that they uh the the enemy units are far enough away that i have time to like you know actually set things up how i want uh to some extent and you know to some extent uh you have to adapt to the generation of where your units are placed uh two the missions should be very short um one thing I learned in the process of Oro is with a tactics game, it can very quickly become a looping of your tactical loop many times over. I don't see any utility in that. I want basically the missions to be short enough to express like what the game is about, um, which I, if I had to guess off the top of my head, probably be like 30 turns or so, 30 or 40 turns worth of stuff i have to test it but that sounds rightish to me 30 to 50 turns i don't know i'll have to play with it but i have a vision in my head of how big it is um maybe you have up to 10 units like six to ten units the enemy has probably a little more than that because they have dumb ai and uh maybe they have a lot more than that um and the the, the map is like you know i don't know 20 four by 24 in size or something like that uh somewhere around those i have it in my head point is it'd be short especially compared to um fantasy general's later missions so there is a lot of stats in fantasy general but a lot of it is um kind of like not hidden but not up front and in your face all the time because actually i found i played fantasy general a lot and i found that units sort of worked in an intuitive way you know, and, and I, and that's kind of how I want players to play. And, um, so actually this may come as a bit of a surprise, but I'm, I'm, I intend to use some random dice rolls a little bit in the, in the combat in fantasy general, when you're about to attack with a unit, it tells you the average outcome. And a lot of the time the outcome is that average outcome. Some of the time the outcome is a little bit like, you know, one or two less or one or two more. And also because there are both wounds and deaths, sometimes it could be like, okay, with this attack, you expect to do one, you know, one death and four wounds, but maybe it does five wounds and zero deaths, or maybe it does 
three wounds and two deaths. You know what I mean? So, so there's, um, that kind of stuff kind of is randomized, uh, but it's like kind of uniformish. And, uh, yeah. So, so the, the other reason to do that is I really just, I want players to play it and not think, <laughs> you know, I've written about this before, but I, I don't think players should be thinking while they're playing strategy games, which I know is that that's, I think that's a very controversial opinion that I have that I need to explore more and, and talk about more, but yeah, I want things to sort of intuitively make sense. And like, I want players to like move things around freely and sort of play with it like a toy, you know, and, and like have fun with it and not be sitting there like, Oh God, I hope I don't fuck up, you know? And I want there to be like some wiggle room and, uh, but it also to be very, you know, reliable and, and, and skill testing. Of course, there'll be a single player ELO. Actually, one of my favorite things about this is the campaign system. I have an idea for a campaign system. So you, you have these missions and they're very short and, um, maybe each, each, the campaign is made up of about 10 of these missions. And each time you do a mission, you can maybe choose between uh, a couple of missions knowing about uh, the rewards. So the objective of the of the whole uh, campaign is to gain a certain amount of land, right? Or or something. Like to, to basically, you're, every time you win a mission, you like get some land or maybe you get something else, like some a new unit or there's also items that your units can equip. There's like various things that you can do. But the idea is by the end of the thing, you have to have gained X amount of land, right? To, to win the entire campaign. Now, here's the cool thing. I'm going to tune things so that um, there's single player ELO, pretty strong single player. There's two kinds of single player ELO in this, uh, in this uh, game. There's one within the campaign, which is very harsh and fast. So if you won the last mission, the next mission is significantly harder and vice versa. Um, so basically, uh, within the campaign, what I'm going to try to tune it for is that you're going to be winning and losing about 50% within the campaign. And your job is to win just slightly more than you lose and to win the whole campaign. And then of course, at stepping out of the campaign, there is a meta game, uh, you know, difficulty rank basically that determines the whole overall difficulty. Um, that second thing I'm less sure about, and I'm still sort of working out the details of it. It may not even be necessary because, uh, the first, the, the, the inner single player ELO inside of a campaign may be enough, or maybe I'll make the campaign a lot longer. I'm not sure. Maybe we'll have different lengths of campaigns, but that's basically the, the sort of idea behind it. It's kind of like a tournament idea and you just want to like it's like a league that you're involved in and you just want to sort of like get into the playoffs by the end of the league it's kind of how i'm thinking of it but yeah um other than that it's gonna have very simple cute pixel art and it's gonna be very like visually simple clear colorful um appealing looking like not violence aestheticized very much there's a whole nother podcast i could do and maybe i will at some point about how do i make a a war game that isn't like sort of glorifying war or isn't glorifying colonialism 
or you know like what what exactly and i have a story and a and a sort of a setup for this that i think is better than than other war games tend to be um and we'll talk about that more but basically this is my overall pitch for fantasy general um and of course it's gonna have a different name later on but anyway that's about all i have for today um thank you for listening if you are a patron of course thank you extra if you're a kickstarter thank you extra by the way both of you should get onto my discord where you can get your special roles um and yeah uh of course if you like this show please consider becoming a patron uh it's one of my primary uh ways of getting stuff out to people these days and it's also one of it really helps me to like be able to pay for my bills and my you know website and my various other things that i am working on so if you enjoyed this podcast um please consider becoming a patron if you're not one already and thank you otherwise thank you so much for listening and i'll be back again soon with new interviews from a lot of really cool game designers who some of whom i met at indicate which i recommend you checking out if you haven't been there before thank you for listening and i will talk to you soon